Amen. Uh, before we get into the message, I just have uh, one brief announcement. Eric mentioned it already, but I wanted to double down on this. I would really ask each of you to pray about whether God might use you in children's ministry in Sunday school. Um, we are expanding the classes. We want to begin to have, um, for the fourth and fifth graders, they're meeting every other week. We want to make it weekly. Um, so that's a step of faith, and we already, um, you know, we're a little bit thin on the teaching pool. We had a couple of teachers call out because there's just sickness going around, and that ends up making the burden on those who are already serving um, joyfully sometimes become burdensome. My dream for children's ministry, I, I asked God to have a church that would be filled with children. He's answered that prayer. I would also love to see us be able to say, you know what, if you want to serve, it might be a couple months because we're just so full of Sunday school teachers, we'll have to find a, a spot to be able to slot you in. Wouldn't that be so much better than having to, uh, to beg for Sunday school teachers? So um, would you please consider that God is at work mightily in the children's ministry in this church, in the youth ministry in this church. If you didn't see the pictures that were up on Facebook, the children uh, or the youth ministry went with Redeemer Point Pleasant and hung up door hangings all around Point Pleasant, inviting people out to their Easter service, to their new facility. Um, God is using our young people as missionaries. Actually, Pastor Seski is over with the uh, church plant today. And um, it's a great opportunity to plug in, to pour in, and see the gospel manifested in the next generation. So would you please just pray about whether that is you that the Lord might be calling to step in to that. Um, I could just speak from experience. Marcy and I actually, we, we fell in love being Sunday school teachers. That's how we started serving together. We were teaching Sunday school, and um, we loved it. Um, but then, uh, you know, the, the church had two services, and we volunteered to take on the second service, and a week became a month, became a year, and um, it was, it, it can take something you're passionate about, and it can begin to dry up that passion. I don't want to see that happen to any of our teachers. They're too lovely. They're worth more than that. So would you pray about the one another passages in Scripture? I'm going to ask you to open the Genesis 6. If you have a Bible, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. God, I ask that as we look to your word, that you would fill me with your spirit as I endeavor to preach things that are too lovely for man's tongue to be able to express. I pray that you would open up hearts and ears of the hearers, that your word would be received, that people would be encouraged, exhorted, brought to repentance, and if there are those out here that do not know you, even brought to salvation this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, Easter Sunday is coming up, and we have several baptisms coming up. So excited about that. So I considered stepping away from Genesis to do something that was more related to Easter, and then I started to study for the Noah narrative in Genesis 6 through 9, and I realized that this is the story of Good Friday and Easter. And, and I would contend by the time we get to the end of it, you might see that it has the clearest typology and imagery of what we know as Good Friday and Easter Sunday anywhere in the Old Testament, perhaps. So 
this story is a story of, check this out, I've got a slide that just kind of shows you a little bit of a breakdown. It's a story of man's wickedness, God's judgment upon that wickedness, God raising up a redeemer, God raising up a means of salvation through that redeemer, and God creating a new covenant to save his people from future judgment. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just trying to fit something into the text in order to see this as a Lent, Palm Sunday, Easter text. And I didn't have to look any further than the New Testament to show that the Spirit seems to agree. Check out 1 Peter 3.20. This is because they, were, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water and then he connects those waters to the waters of baptism which we will be celebrating two weeks from today. Even like we see in the gospel accounts of of Matthew and in Luke, there are genealogies like we saw last week in Andy's message that all point to the emergence of this Redeemer. So we're going to be doing a three-part mini-series through this Easter season based on the Noah narrative. Uh, Today, April 7th, Genesis 6, we're going to be looking at A New Hope, Part 1, Judgment and the Redeemer. On April 14th, next week, we're going to be looking at Genesis 7 and 8, New Hope, Part 2, the darkness that comes before the dawn. And on April 28th, because we're going to skip a week for Easter Sunday, We're going to look at Genesis 9 and see the new commission to go out, be fruitful, multiply, and once again, subdue the earth. One thing that should come across really clearly in this mini-series, and I often say this, the Bible is not a book about various heroes. A sermon should never fall into the lazy trap of, here is what Noah did. Noah was good. Go be like Noah or David, or Abraham, or Moses, or any other person that we treat as Bible heroes for that matter. All that does is moralize people and it ignores the centrality of the gospel. And the gospel is so central in this passage. The Bible has one hero. His name is Jesus, who came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't, not so that we could say, hey, Go be like Noah. I can't believe how many sermons I've heard that have passed as a Christian sermon in Christian churches where it just takes some random hero and says, here's the application. Go be like this guy. The reason that Jesus had to come is because we couldn't go and be like fill in the blank. And they needed Jesus too. And if this is all true, the emphasis is not on us. It's not on what we must do to be like Noah, but the story of redemption that freed us from judgment and the Redeemer who gave us new life. So let's look at the first eight verses together. It says, When men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My flesh shall not abide in man forever. For his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and 
also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man, for I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This story is about the natural bent toward wickedness that mankind had fallen into and the moral downhill slide that quickly began to erode after the initial sin in the garden. We're going to see as we go along in this passage that the entire earth was filled with wickedness. I mean, how quickly have things begun to fall apart? We're on page six of a really long book. And God already had to call a do-over. We go from the rebellion against God in the garden, which quickly devolves into Cain murdering his brother, which quickly devolves even further into Lamech taking multiple wives and murdering a man and even boasting about it. Think about that for a minute. Like really, like stop and, and consider. I always try to remind you guys to like, pause and take in the gravity of words, especially in passages that you may have read multiple times to stop and consider and let them wreck you afresh and anew, stop and think about the magnitude of these events. Think today if we had somebody marrying multiple wives, this is the first occurrence of that in the Bible, by the way, and then murdering someone, and then writing a song about it. And then using that song so that they could have a closed fist rebellion against God. That sounds like the stuff that you hear, and I'm not trying to be cute with this. That sounds like the stuff that you heard the Manson family doing back in the 60s. That sounds like the David Koresh saga down in Waco in the 90s. And this chapter is saying that the decline continued to go further and even deeper still. And the slide into sin and self-centeredness and complete disregard for God and his ways began to really speed up and move at an accelerated rate. So much so that God says things like he does in verses 5 and 6. I mean, again, consider the magnitude. I'm going to go deeper into these verses when I get there within the context of the passage. But consider the magnitude of what the author is saying. I mean, what does it look like for people's thoughts to only be bent on evil all the time? How bad must things have gotten for God to say that he regretted creating man? Think about this. These are really strong statements. And it all happened just so fast. I gave this warning last week. And I'm going to give it again this week, and then I might even give it again later in the sermon. But take notice how quickly sin devolves into a complete disregard and becomes a self-centered, hardened, unresponsive heart. If I can help you see anything from this progression, or should I say the digression from Genesis 3 until 
this passage in chapter 6. It's that sin spreads faster than any wildfire in history. This is what Jesus meant when he said statements like, it only takes a little bit of leaven to leaven the entire loaf. When we begin to rationalize or justify leaven, it begins to permeate every aspect of your life too. It is not a contained fire. Hear me on this. Sin is not a contained or controlled fire. It's a fire that can rage out of control and destroy everything in its wake. And if you're playing around with sin and you're fooling yourself into thinking, hey, I've got this, that should be the first sign that you absolutely ain't got this. So let's get into some specifics regarding the decline and decay that we see in this passage. So the nature of the wickedness from verses 1 through 4, this has been up for debate for a long time, so I'm going to do my best and show you the various views and how people have arrived at them. I've had a few of you weirdos say, I can't wait till we get to those verses to find out what that possibly means. And there are some strange verses so again, it's the, the men began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born, and then the sons of God saw that the, the daughters of men were attractive, and they took their wives any that they chose. And then down to verse 4, the Nephilim were in the land, and the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old. So this story up to this time has mostly been about male descendants, but in verse 1, we see that the daughters were born to the sons of men that Andy had discussed last week in the genealogies in the previous chapter. And then we see this curious statement about the sons of God in verse 2. These sons of God begin to take wives from amongst the daughters of men. And the Lord seems to be against their marriage in verse 3, suggesting that this must be something unnatural that's taking place. Because remember, it was just a couple of chapters earlier that God had said that marriage is good, and he declared it very good, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, but this is somehow different. God does not seem to see this as very good. The way that this passage is written, this is ominous, what is taking place. And then in verse 4, we see that these people are the Nephilim, which means the giants. And the term sons of God is used again to describe them, showing them that this is the same group of people that was spoken about in verse 2. And then we see the offspring of these daughters and men were the sons of God, and they become these mighty warriors of renown. So, okay, what does any of that mean? That's strange. Um, well, there are three main views. There's other views, but there's three main views that people fall into. And uh, I'll do my best. This isn't a, one of those right or wrong things like your salvation hinges upon it. There are good and godly Christians who take any of these views. There's a view that the sons of God spoken about are the cursed descendants of Cain. And this view has its merit. That's the language that was used by Eve. Remember back in Genesis 4 when she gave birth to Cain? And they were supposed to be banished from the people of God. So those who hold this view are saying that they were 
intermarrying with the race through which the Messiah would come through and beginning to pollute that messianic line. There's a more generic view that this is simply speaking of evil generations and people who had zero regard for God. And they would use their size and their might to seek and frustrate the plans of God. And I see this as the least viable of the view because the language is just too specific in this passage to be so generic of interpretation. And then there's the crazy view, which is the one that I hold to. Um, My view is that this is speaking of angelic beings who left their normal abode and came to earth and had children with the daughters of men. I don't know how that works. I do not know how the biology or sexuality of angels works, but I'll give you some evidence as to why I believe this. The result being, though, this breed of half-angelic, half-human super beings. I know it sounds crazy, right? I looked up what Calvin had to say about this because sometimes I like older views because sometimes newer views can de-supernaturalize passages and he said that the view that I hold to is crazy so he wasn't much of a help. Um, But the angelic view has a fair amount of scriptural merit. Job 1.6 and Job 2.1 in speaking of the rebellious angels that were gathered around the throne of God uses the same language that's used here, the sons of God. Then there's this odd verse in Jude 1.6. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position or authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. When would this time have been? When they did not leave Uh, stay within their realm, but left their realm and did something that was so vile that they were thrown into darkness. This word darkness is not the typical word in the Greek that is used for hell, which is Gehenna. This is the word Tartarus for any of you guys that know your Greek mythology. So it is a extra deep layer of hell. And Jude borrowed from that word to say that this is the judgment because the wickedness was so great. And then there's another verse in 2 Peter 4 through 5, which also references this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. This one seals it for me because contextually it breaks down exactly like Genesis 6 does. It seems as if you have some kind of judgment being brought upon these angelic beings And then you see the next step of Noah being a preacher of righteousness, just like it unfolds here in Genesis 6. Any of these interpretations hold weight. None of them are more orthodox or more conservative than any of the others. You're free to hold any of them. And I probably took more time than I needed, but I didn't want to skip over it because sometimes it is fun to look at those interesting, quirky passages in Scripture. You know what I mean? So they're fun things to speculate on, but there are certain things about the wickedness that is going on that we know. 
It continued to spread and decay from the first sin and the first murder until now it's at the point where violence covered the entire face of the earth and it gets into a place where the hearts of people are bent on nothing but evil continually. So God gets into some specifics about the evil that we see. Whatever the nature of the wickedness was, it was enough to make him make a decision to begin shortening the lifespan of people dramatically in verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. If you remember the genealogies that we looked at last week, you'll probably remember Something that should have stood out, which was the incredible old age that people lived to before the generations of Noah. And then in verse 3, with one powerful statement, God cuts it down closer to what we see today. And it's just my opinion, but that verse does not nearly get enough attention or the attention that it deserves. I mean, people look at this passage and they think of, What is the judgment in this text? Just to test this theory, I asked several of you this week, what is the judgment in this text? Every single one of you replied the flood, rightly so. That is the judgment. But there's something going on here. And this is a pretty severe judgment for a race of people who are once considered to be immortal, isn't it? Things must have been pretty wicked for God to make the judgment that we saw and say, you're not going to live to be 969 like Methuselah. Now 120 is going to be your limit. And that still did not stop man in their tracks. They just rebelled harder in the face of God's judgment. They grow more defiant. The more God ratchets up the pressure, the more they ratchet up their defiance. It's kind of like you see in Revelation that when God is truly ratcheting up the pressure, they are, instead of calling out to the lamb, they are calling out to the rocks and the mountains, it says, saying, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb. When at any time they could just stop and say, Jesus, save me. But in their rebellious hearts, they would rather continue to find ways to maintain their rebellion. But whatever conclusion you take on the Nephilim, it is without a doubt, it was not something good. It's ominous. Verse 5, it says that the wickedness of man was great on the whole earth. And then it says, think of this. Like, if you've zoned out, zone back in for a second. Every thought and intention of man's heart was only evil continually. And the Hebrew is just so strong. I mean, it is stressing only evil. That's where their mind was bent. Only evil? Like, seriously, think about that. Think about what this pre-Deluvian world must have looked like. And then in verse 6, It says that the wickedness was so great that God regretted that he ever even made man. I don't know how that fits into God's omniscience. Does anybody else wonder about that when you see verses like this or where you see in Exodus that it says that God repented? Um, Like, like, how does that fit 
with you being outside of time and you knowing the beginning and the end and you seeing all of it and being fully all-knowing. But to think that an omniscient, all-knowing God created man, they must have been so wicked in order for an omniscient God to regret their creation. Yet their wickedness was so egregious that God truly did regret that he made mankind to begin with. And then it goes on to say that the wickedness of man grieved the heart of God. Man, as I read that this week, I don't know how often you stop on the stories of Genesis and just allow yourself to not say, hey, I've read this a million times, I know this. If you read that something that God was cut to the heart in grief, that should make you pause. That should make you consider. And just a slight tangent here, but... Think of this within the context of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Those whose intentions were bent on only evil crucified the Son of Glory so that they could continue in their rebellion. And even though it says here that God was grieved, that he so grieved that he regretted that he even created man, God still chose to give his one and only Son to a bunch of rebels like this. For a group of rebels like you. For a group of rebels like me. And it says that he grieved here in this text. How much must he have grieved when he had to allow the crushing of his own son? But he did it anyway because he loves a rebellious, stiff-necked people like you and I that much. The story of redemption is all over the narrative of Noah. A couple more specifics from the passage regarding the nature of their wickedness to set the context of why the flood had to happen. Verse 11 says that the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And then it goes on to say that the earth was full of violence. And then God doubles down on the corruption and he calls it corrupt again. And then check this out. For a third time, he says again, flesh corrupted its way on all the earth in verse 12. So within the span of two sentences, God calls the whole earth corrupt three times. That's bad. And when you put that whole list together, it makes a really damning case. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but is it just me or does it seem like we are getting dangerously close to that wickedness in our present day and age? I don't know what led God to look at the world and say that the world was corrupt three times over the course of two verses, but I can't imagine him looking at the world today and coming to the conclusion that it's not corrupt. Can you? And then where it says that the whole world was full of violence, I can't imagine him looking at the world and concluding that it's not violent. Can you? We just have more sophisticated ways of our violence. Like the lack of value that we put upon the unborn. Or science in the form of eugenics. Or weapons of mass destruction where we can kill millions of people with the push of a button rather than having to kill them barehanded like civilized people back in Genesis 6. I'm sure I'm not the only one who wonders how long the world can keep going at its present rate. And I'm not a preacher of doom and gloom. I'm really not. But 
If you even just read the studies on how much anxiety has risen over the last several years in this nation and around the world. Yet in spite of all of this, God is still saving rebels and calling them to himself. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? And I just want to circle around one more time, even though I've been hammering this point for the last two sermons. Take a step back and look how quickly sin was able to run roughshod through a destructive path. Sin is nothing to play with. As John Piper said, we should see this and we should want to wage war against sin. Or to really quote Piper, wage war against sin. It's a great sermon. Don't just sit there and complain about being defeated and bellyache about it. Wage war. Sin still runs the same destructive path today that it ran back then. So as we go on in our text, yes, God is merciful, but he must also bring wickedness in to judgment. Look with me at verse 7. It says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. And then skip down to verses 11 through 17. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy all the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are able to make it, and it gives the length and cubits. Make a roof for the ark. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So in verse 7, he says he is going to blot out mankind from the face of the earth. You know, the Hebrew word for blot out is fascinating. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 51.6 when David prays that beautiful prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba when he says, blot out my iniquities, O Lord. So even though this is a judgment, there's other words for judgment. He's using a word that suggests cleansing or starting over more than the typical word that is used for judgment. Hymn writers have picked up on the connection to the cleansing flood and the blood of Jesus. An old hymn that, um, kind of an obscure hymn, I don't know if you know it, but it goes, O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. That imagery comes from here. It comes from this Hebrew word. God also says in verse 7 that he is going to blot out all living things. That really helps you understand the context of Romans 8.22 when it says, not just people, all of creation groans with the pains of childbirth, awaiting the appearing of the sons of God, awaiting the return of the Savior. And in the midst of that judgment, God laments one more time, expressing that he's sorry that he even made man to begin with. I have to think that that part 
must be pointing forward to the tremendous cost of redemption. He knew what it was going to cost him. He knew what our sin was going to cost him to turn our sin into victory. So the judgment continues in verses 11 through 17 that I just read. And God said he's determined to make an end to all flesh. And then God instructs Noah to build an ark that will serve as both a vessel of judgment and a vessel of salvation. The imagery of the cross is so plainly and intentionally all over this passage. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. We see this right here. So much so that Peter picks it up in both 1 Peter and 2 Peter and makes the connection for us. And that's why I don't spend that much time going into trying to explain the apologetics of what a cubit is or how the different kinds of animals relate to the term species that we use in modern context today. I have a confession to make. And I'll bet you that there's some of you that might need to make this confession. I read the book of Genesis from a defensive posture for years. I read Genesis to do battle with Darwinian evolutionists. Or I did it to do battle with secular humanism. But I had a moment, I may have shared this before, but it profoundly changed the way that I see life, Christianity, evangelism, and therefore the way that I would teach this text. I used to work for a Mormon company when I was living, going to Moody in Chicago, and it was all Mormons except for the head cheese who was an atheist. And I was sharing about the uniqueness, the monogenes of the only true Son of God, Jesus, to these Mormons. And then the boss comes in and he starts chirping about the ark. And he says, yeah, all that's fine and good, but you know, are you really that stupid to think that like all the animals could have fit on a boat? What's up with that? So I went back and I began studying exactly what is a cubit? What would the dimensions of this thing have looked like? How many animals could have fit on this thing? And I came back the next day and I blasted him. I was like, bro, you don't even know what a cubit is. This thing was like a floating barge and it had one level and then two levels and then three levels and it it had every single kind of animal and there would have been so much space that it even had room for their feces on board unless they just chucked it over the sides. And man, I just went all out on this guy. And after my indefensible rant, the guy said something that I'll never forget. He said, wow, you make a really strong case and you're a really sharp dude. And just as I was about to take it as my crown and badge of honor, he said, but you're the biggest jerk I've ever met. And I would never want to be like you. I was crushed. I was humbled. It caused me to reconsider what I was getting out of the book of Genesis and ask God, is that what you really want to convey? And is the fruit that I'm demonstrating the fruit that you really want to come out of this? And not that that stuff's not fascinating or even edifying, but I was missing the main point. I was missing the forest for the trees. The main point is that a holy God judges wickedness. And in keeping with the theme of Genesis, God always provides a way of salvation for the righteous remnant. I should have been pleading with this man to flee the wrath to come instead of thumping my chest and showing off my intellect and machismo to this guy. 
Texts like this show us, whether we believe it or not, that God is going to bring wickedness into judgment. Evil and injustice are going to come to an end, whether you believe it or not. It's not like when that day is going to come, he's going to say, well, they're exempt from judgment because they believe this was all a myth and that you guys are all deceived and wasting your time. When that day comes, God, when God no longer wants to restrain his judgment, it's going to fall on everybody. And just because you didn't believe doesn't matter, mean that you get a vote in the matter. The only people that are going to spare are going to be the ones who have bowed their knee and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So people have gone through great lengths to come up with systems of thought where they can excuse their wickedness so they can continue to maintain a lifestyle that they want to live. So often, people will go through even greater lengths to come up with their own standard by which to judge righteousness and unrighteousness. And it's interesting that people want to think that nothing will be judged, yet they want to call for justice when their imaginary line in the sand has been crossed. God's line's not imaginary. It's his perfect holiness. And people were not just crossing it, they were blowing right past it into full-on rebellion. One other thought before moving on. Why would we think that if God judged wickedness before, that that's okay? We can look at the story of Noah. It's cute. We'll make wallpaper and put it up in all of our children's nurseries. Um, I'm not making fun. We did it. Too, but it's really not a very good children's story. Um, but then you act like it's condemning to say that he's going to come back and do it again. You feel me on that? I mean, God destroyed the whole earth apart from this family of eight people. That actually happened. But when you say that God's coming back to judge the living and the dead, people look at you as if you're insane. And Christianity has gotten so stinking watered down that even Christians look at you like you're insane when you say that. Only Jesus has offered salvation to everybody who wants to go on to the true ark. And people who want to thumb their nose at that means of salvation, but then feel like it's judgmental to say that God is holy because he is judge, it doesn't line up. But we don't camp on the judgment. There is good news, even... Though God is just, he's also gracious, so God raised up a deliverer to save his people from the coming judgment. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. For these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We are told that Noah found favor in God's sight. We are told that he was a righteous man. We are told that he was a blameless man. We see a repetition of the words that were used of Enoch back in chapter 5 that Andy spoke of last week when it says that he walked with God. Noah was not sinless, but he was pointing to the one who was truly righteous. He was pointing to the one who was truly blameless because he was without sin. He was pointing to the one who truly walked with God, even though it meant enduring a cross. 
to the one who truly found favor with the Father, who said at the baptism of his Son, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And this is going to be a theme over and over and over throughout the book of Genesis. Even in the midst of judgment, God always preserved a faithful remnant. God always preserved a line for the deliverer who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent that was spoken of back in Genesis 3.15. And even in the most bleak of times, God has always graciously provided his people with a means of salvation. And today, the church the true church, are the eight people on that ark. We are the faithful remnant. And when I mean true church, I mean the ones who still stand on the gospel, who believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the light, and nobody comes to the Father but by him. The ones who believe that every word written in this book is true and profitable. I'm not talking about social clubs that gather on Sunday mornings and treat the Bible like it's Aesop's fables. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the true church consisting of true believers who have put true trust in the Redeemer. You are the faithful remnant. You are those who were carried through the storm unto salvation if you've believed in Jesus. And not only did God raise up a Redeemer, God raised up a means to save his people from the coming judgment. And if you didn't think that this was an Easter or Good Friday text, I mean, now it's just, you can't get around it. It's pretty simple. Those who were on the ark would be saved. Those who were not on the ark perished. It's really cut and dry, no pun intended. Um, but this is pointing ahead to the true and greater ark. God's ark, the cross of Jesus Christ. And the same truth that was true in the days of Noah is true today, that those who enter into salvation through the means of the cross shall be eternally saved, and those who try to circumvent it will perish. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. You can't go, people aren't climbing over the walls, folks. There's not a backdoor entrance into glory. Let me give you a picture of just how foolish man-made religion is. Imagine somebody was standing near the ark when the flood began. And instead of seeking to save their life by entering through the means of salvation that God graciously provided, and they're sitting there with the waters coming up to their neck, they're saying, well, my religion says that I could never believe in a God who would send a flood like this. My religion says that if I do enough good works, I don't need your stupid ark. And imagine people holding on to it so defiantly that as they're drowning and in their dying breath, they still refuse to take the refuge and go onto the ark, and they are just contented that their good works will save them from this flood, even though everything around them is showing contrary. It's pretty simple, right? Well, in the same way, in the same folly, if you're sitting here knowing that you might be saved by the cross of Jesus Christ and you are not taking that means of salvation, that life preserver that God has thrown you to lead you aboard his ark. But they say, no, I'm good. In fact, I'm so good that I'm going to save myself. 
God, I don't need your help. Willfully rejecting the good news and willfully embracing bad news is the definition of religion. That's what you're doing when you make man-made religion. You're willfully rejecting God's good news and willfully embracing bad news. When we stand before God, He is not going to ask any of you how religious you are. He's going to say, what have you done with my son? That's going to be the million-dollar question. And for all who believe in Him, He grants to them eternal life. There's no need to continue drowning in this life or in eternity when God has sent an ark by Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save us all. And the good news is, is God wants you on His ark. So much so that He laid down His life to prove it. He put skin in the game, folks. So as we finish this passage, we're going to see one last thing, and that's that God established a covenant. Look at verses 18 through 22. It says, But I will establish My covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing and all flesh you shall bring two of every sort unto the ark with you. They should be male and female. And I'm going to go into all of that stuff. And take with you every sort of food system stored up, and it shall serve you as food for them. Noah did this as God had commanded. And I skipped over the verse that was most important, which he says that I am going to set a rainbow in the sky as a sign of my covenant to you. He puts the rainbow in the sky as a sign that he's never going to flood the earth again. You know, when we see the word covenant in Scripture, it means an unbreakable promise. God made an unbreakable promise to his people. Every time God makes a covenant, there is a sign of that covenant. The sign of this covenant was a rainbow. Every time we look at it, we're able to be reminded of God's faithfulness to His Word and His promises. You ever stop when you see a rainbow in the sky and just say, wow, God, Your Word's still true. It's never deviated. It's never been untrue. We as believers have entered into what the prophets called the New Covenant. That's what we read, that's what Rich Cromwell read during our time of worship through song. It's a promise that every person who truly believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. It's a promise that he will take away our hearts of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. It's a promise that he has written his laws upon the hearts of all true believers. And then he sealed that covenant with the blood of his son. And he gave us two signs of that covenant. One we're going to be looking at in two weeks is baptism, which is a sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and saying, I identify, I am in union with with that Savior. And the second one we know is common union or communion, which we will be taking in a moment and we partake as a moment of remembrance of His body being broken and His blood shed so that He could make us His covenant people. God gives us these signs. The rainbow, communion, baptism to remind us of His long-suffering and always faithfulness and that he will always do as he promised that's why we make a big deal of communion each week because we are forgetful and we need to be reminded before we go to communion i want to ask you a couple application points 
Why it is the way that leads to destruction, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. I want to ask you, are you walking the narrow path? If you are, your life should stand out and look dramatically different than the path that is walked on by the majority. God didn't call us to be the majority people. He called us to a path that was straight and narrow. So if that's true, our goal should not be to fit in. Our goal should be to live as aliens on this earth. It's the word that Peter used to open up his epistle. He says, I exhort you, aliens who are scattered, you are aliens. That's good news. Does your walk with God set you apart as a countercultural beacon in a world that needs to see Christians standing out a whole lot more than they need to see Christians fitting in? And lastly, what markers do you have in your life to remind you of God's faithfulness to keep his promises? You know, uh, I got saved in a rehab, as most of you know. And um, when I was leaving, there were people that wrote me a little note on this index card, just reminding me of the condition that I entered that place and the new creation that I was when I left. I kept that note folded in my wallet now for 18 years. That wallet has been washed. It has been lost. And I've never cared about finding the wallet. The credit cards could be canceled. I don't carry cash anyway, and if I did, Marcy takes it. Um, <laughs> this has been the concern. I love looking back on this and keeping it green and remembering where the Lord brought me from and remembering that he's faithful to his promises. The first time Marcy wrote down, I love you, on a piece of paper, she said to me, keep this always. We were sitting at Sentosa, a Chinese restaurant on Route 88. I've kept this in every wallet I've had. I've carried this thing with me. It's a reminder, a reminder of faithfulness. A reminder of a promise. What are the reminders that you're setting up in your life to bring you back as beacons to recall God's faithfulness? I'm going to lead us directly into communion. That's going to be our application. We don't have laser light machines to be able to project a rainbow behind us. But what we do have is this simple but profound ritual of a cup and a cracker that represent that God made an agreement with us. Ushers, you can come forward. This represents, just like God told the people, I'm going to give you a rainbow to remind you every time you see that, that you can look upon that and be reminded of my faithfulness and that I will never again destroy the world in this way. Every time we look upon this, and every single time we partake of it, we are able to remember that we were saved through nothing of our own, but that Jesus Christ's body was broken on our behalf and His blood was shed and we are eternally saved through faith in Him. If that's you, if you have trusted in that, come and partake of these signs of the covenant. I'm going to pray and then I invite you forward. Jesus, thank you that you make promises that you always keep. And Lord, you even allowed the crushing of your son to show us just how faithful you are 
to bring about that which you have promised. We thank you as we come and partake with grateful hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.